0: Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So is the question of Nicodemus at the end of the reading today. Shouldn't this person have a hearing for what they are doing? This is part of what one of the major themes of the Gospel of John is trying to do, is to give Jesus a hearing so that we can make our own judgment upon him. Kind of. John, John, at the end of the gospel, is pretty clear that, that it's not um, just neutral, but Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not recorded in this book, which to we think, that's a mistake. We want all of the signs. But these are written, that you might believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is the end, or towards the end, of John's gospel, um, and it proclaims that it's written in this way. Now, in this chapter, um, thank you, Chris, for doing that long reading. She's back with the kids in the nursery today. Um, it's hard to narrow it down, so I just go for the whole thing, for better or worse. Um, but there's this whole theme in this chapter of sort of this trial of who is this person? who um, are we seeking? What is he doing? Is he good or bad, profit or not? And if you trace most of the chapter, it's built around sort of these questions and conversations around Jesus. Who is this one? In the previous chapter, too, in chapter 6, what we found out is that that when Jesus proclaimed to be the bread of life, that that which has come down from heaven, that the disciples are to eat his body and drink his blood, he has lost most of his followers as well. It shouldn't surprise us, I guess, that at the beginning of the chapter he's stuck with his brothers who don't believe in him but are still gaming to get him to go to Jerusalem all the same. Um, you have to go there to become famous, is sort of what they say. Um, they want him to go there. So he's lost most of his disciples, followers. There are some who remained because he is the one who has the words of life, they respond when he asks, Why aren't they leaving? And so he goes up for this Jewish festival. Now, last week, I spent a fair amount of time at the beginning of the sermon talking about how so much of this is situated in Jewish history and wilderness time. The Jews were freed from Egypt and they go out into the wilderness and they have these signs of bread, of, of water, of a fiery flame. Um, and what Jesus is sort of working through with them is that he is the truth to which those stand to point to. He is the bread of heaven, he is the living water that flows through the rock. He is, um, in the next section, he is the light. So he, he moves through these themes in which, in which have this deep meaning. And, and so this one, this festival, the festival of Booths, is another one of those. Jesus goes up to the temple. I think the next two chapters pretty much take place around this festival in which the, the Jews were commanded to sort of make shelters and stay outside their house houses and recall to themselves when they were in the wilderness. Jesus keeps placing this, or John, as he tells us the story of Jesus, keeps placing so much of the imagery in the wilderness. And part of it, I think, is true is that we sort of live wilderness lives ourselves. Longing for the safety of idolatry, hoping for freedom, looking forward and backwards, looking for substance in the presence, but trying to find it ourselves, rather than from the provision of God, that that sort of describes our lives as well. And so what Jesus proclaims to us is that, that here I am. You keep looking, trying to make your own meaning, your own sources of goodness, your own ways of surviving, and yet here I am come amongst you. And so seven sort of, chapter seven sort of follows that theme, but it's under this question of who Jesus is. Now, there's this famous quote on the back of the bulletin that we won't read all of today from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity and what Lewis proclaims in the social situation of during World War II, I believe, that, that what Jesus asks from us is that we either declare him a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. That if you look at what he says and how he proclaims his life, if somebody says, I am the living water, whoever thirsts for me will never thirst again, as he told the woman at the well, the person who says that is either a liar They are not the living water, a lunatic, or what they proclaim that they are, the Lord. And Lewis is trying to to get people to stop saying, you know, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't believe he's God. And he ends that quote with saying, um, he has not left that open to us, he did not intend to. Now, I think this is an interesting apologetic defense of the face, say in the late 1950s, but I think today, um, this is a weird test story of my own, is that when I was in seminary, a guy was hosting a radio slash podcast show, it was both, um, and we were supposed to debate C.S. Lewis, and he wanted young people to come on, millennials is what he said, um, and debate some other learned scholar on how relevant C.S. Lewis was for today. For some reason, I had volunteered to be the millennial, the young person, and I had to go through a vast interview process, and somehow I got selected. If you've ever argued with me, you're probably like, no shocker there that you made it through the process. Um, And so I made it all the way through. They put me on the show, and then it comes to this passage. It's funny. One of the ones I was assigned to debate with an older scholar was this one. Um, Is this still relevant today? And the person I got paired with was an older Presbyterian pastor named Earl Palmer. So I go to a friend and I say, hey, I gotta go defend this, who's a priest in the area, and I'm newer to Seattle. And he was like, oh, that's gonna be, and I thought he'd be like, you got this, this is easy. And he was like, Earl Palmer was three three times offered the the chance to be the president of Princeton Seminary. So you are far outmatched and outnumbered. Um, And he said, he had no help. He was like, I don't know, Uh, just try not to screw up. Um, That was the lot I was given to go debate um, and he, like an older Presbyterian pastor, was one of the most generous, kind individuals ever. Um, was interested in me, and so I just beat him up, and he took, it. no. Um, uh, we had a good conversation, but part of what I came to as we were talking about it, and he agreed with me, and it was, an, it was meant to be fruitful. It was not really meant to be a debate where one person loses or this. Is that more often than not, if presented with those options, people are like, fine, liar. Fine, lunatic. People aren't being logic into accepting that Jesus is Lord. If you're going to press me on it, and this is what me and him sort of agreed on, if you're going to press somebody who's like, look, I'll accept he's a great moral teacher like Buddha and the others, if you press them and, and try to say, no, no, you can't do that, they'll say, fine, lunatic, fine, liar. People, and so in Lewis's um, post, early part of post-Christian England, there was still this idea of like, well, you can't be a respectable person and call him a liar or lunatic. And so the bridge to getting people to the Lord might have had some benefit. Today, pressured on that front, you can, in many ways, be a respectable person and have no regard for Jesus. And so I think that's interesting when we look at this pastor to look, passage to look at as people in his time, and the readers of John's Gospel, are asking the same question at this point. Who is this one? Now often I'm reminded of when it comes to apologetic stances of trying to make and defend the faith of a, of a phrase from St. Augustine, which is, um, the truth doesn't need to be defended. It's like a lion, it needs to be set free. So often we live our lives trying to defend all of these claims, and there are moments where that is necessary, but so often they can be set free into the world. Jesus as he does his ministry in this chapter and his teaching, primarily teaching is um, being set free into the world. His defenses aren't as um, for instance, and Lewis I think is, is a great discipler I think his apologetic has some limitation today um, But uh, I think some of the people that do sort of modern apologetics would love to coach Jesus on how to better defend his ministry. Um, We could help you out. Um, And yet he sort of testifies to who he is come and see, is what he said earlier in the gospel. Judge what I am doing, how I am acting. Not, let's take all these things, add them up, here I am, you should accept this truth. But he lives as one who sort of brings life, is full of life. And this passage restores the whole of a person when he's talking about his healing on the Sabbath. And so this chapter, we find Jesus going up to the Festival of Booths, this temporary structure time. This was um, weirdly one of the biggest festivals of the year. Men were required to come to three festivals um, uh, Passover, tabernacles, or booths, um, and I think the last one. Um, Anyways, what? Day of Atonement, yeah. They're required to come to three festivals, but this one is sort of like the biggest party. It's the end of the harvest, too. It corresponds to all these things. And so this is when Jesus goes up to this place that's loaded with meaning of sort of this wilderness time. And also meaning about who is this one who has come to us, who's claimed to be bread, who's claimed to be the source of living water. And so there's this overlap of questions and times. Now as brothers who call him up there, um, let's go to Judea. Um, You can't be famous if you hide like this, if you do such wonderful things. Show yourself to the world. Now this, these temptations, these things that sort of come up in, in John's gospel, there are several of them that mirror the temptations that Jesus experiences in, in Luke and Math, Matthew. Um, uh, these temptation th- scenes, this is that one to sort of like, be popular, make yourself known, and all the kingdoms of the world will come to you. Oftentimes, I think we'd prefer a God like this. Um, there's a, there's a Chris Tomlin song, I believe. It's a, you the God or the famous one, famous one, um, which comes from the scriptures that God's renown will go out. But in an era of Us Weekly, it sounds like, oh, Jesus is famous too. Um, uh, that we want one who is famous in the ways that fame comes. I don't know, has anybody seen the He Gets Us campaign commercials? Yeah, they're, they're, one of the stated goals of their campaign, which There's good and bad there. I mean, I I don't have much um, opinion on on it as a whole, but one of their stated goals is to repair Jesus' PR image in America. Go to Jerusalem so you can be famous if you can do these signs. Um, It seems like that's part of uh, the way in which we want God to come. And what's interesting is that, that in John's Gospel, this shows a sign of disbelief. You would think this would be a sign of belief. We think you're great. You've done great things. Why don't you go and show yourself off where things are shown off? Now, Jesus says to them, uh, this is uh, St. Augustine, actually, you see our country is lofty one, but the way to it is low. Whoever rejects the way, why does he seek this country? Our country is a lofty one, but the way to it is low. They want him to go up to show himself off, and yet the way to this is low. That's the will he talks about in this next passage. Now is not the right time for me to go up, but you can go any time. The world can hate, hate, can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. You go on. I'm not going to the festival because my time has not yet come. The thick passage here, one, we'll start with the back end, which is I'm not going to the festival, and then he goes to the festival. Um, there's a bit of several answers to this. Is Jesus lying? Is he not telling the truth? It seems like I think the most obvious thing is he's not going the way they want him to go, which is why he doesn't go with them. If he were to go with them, hey, everybody gather around, get this guy some bread, he's going to multiply it and feed you all. Um, what actually he goes on a separate journey, not in the same way that they would have him go. There's a bit of it may mean I'm not going at the exact time you want me to. Going all the way back to the wedding at Cana, which we didn't cover this year, Mary asked Jesus to do something about the lack of wine at a wedding. Um, And he says, my time has not yet come, but does it anyways? He has this weird way of sort of like talking about his time, which is this fuller time, this this Kairos time, which comes in its fullness which means this idea of um, his glorification, his time of, of cross, resurrection, and ascension to God. So in John, when he's saying, my time has not yet come, which he says a couple times in this passage, his time has not yet come, this, that, and the other, it means that the time at which he is to be crucified has not yet come. And as you watch in John's gospel, the closer it gets to that time, and this is true of the other three gospels as well, but it comes heightened in John, Jesus is more in control of that time as it comes than the actors around him. It's almost like he's moving the pieces as that time comes. And so when they try to seize him now at this point in the festival, they're unable to because those pathways are not open to them yet. Bagging up one more in this, the world can't hate you, but it does hate me because I accuse it of doing evil. The world so far in John's gospel has been the site of God's love. But what John's gospel also points out is that the world often hates Jesus, God, and will later say that we should take heart, he has overcome the, wor- the, the world, but his disciples will go through that trial as well. That as God sort of so loves the world, the world chooses to stamp out God. We know this in our own hearts and lives as well, and I think accused it of doing evil. Is um, one we have popular in today? Is I think certain Christians love to accuse the world of doing evil. But what Jesus means uh, in John's Gospel is that as I come as light and truth, they turn against me. The accusation comes from the world's turning and attack against. You'll see very seldom. Does Jesus and John's gospel or any of the gospels, get up and straight up accuse it of doing evil. The temple scenes, um, there are some spots where he does, but more often the evil is shown in the ways in which it doesn't know the one whom it has been sent. So too, as we go as sent ones, we don't need to accuse the world of evil. It's in that what we bring. Now is not the right time for me to go, but you can go any time. This is the next section after this one. There was lots of grumbling as he gets there. Um, As Jesus gets to the place of the temple, uh, he goes up and the Jews were amazed. How did he get such learning without having been taught? Um, How did he figure all this out when they surprised? Here it is. Uh, They were surprised when they heard him. How much does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? They asked. And what happens is, as Jesus sort of moves up in this phase of his ministry, is he begins to speak as the one who is more the author of the story than one who has studied the story. In the next scene, with the woman caught in adultery, Jesus says, Let he is without sin cast the first stone. And he seems to be speaking as that the law was pointed at one thing, but its fullness means something else. And this doesn't come from studying with other rabbis which was more the traditional way of gaining education at the time, the way in which Jesus moves through this is by being one with the one who has sent him. Now, so often in Christianity, I think we find two types of people we're attracted to, and one is the right answer and one is the wrong answer in some ways, is, is we are attracted to people who have the right credentials, who have studied, who are so knowledgeable and connected all together. We would never ask this question, how does he know so much when he hasn't been trained? We love the trained. And yet, we also know people, and I'm sure you can think of them as as you've walked this journey, who speak as if they are ones who have walked with Jesus. The authority of their words doesn't come from degrees or who they've sat under, but it comes from the ways in which they've walked through this path with the Lord. That they've seen the one who was in scent, how he lived and acted, and then followed in that way. And I think as many people, we think of this in so many realms of our lives, which would we rather be known as? The one who did all the work and studied, and therefore brings impressionability with them, or the one who comes as if they know because they've been there. Because they've walked with that one. That they've figured it out. Through, through the hard lessons of life. And so the people have this challenge to him. Jesus replies, my teaching is not of my own. It comes from the one who sent me. He's learned from spending time and he is sent from the side of that one. Then he accuses them. Has Moses not given you law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? That's the end of this passage. Which they reply, "You're demon possessed. Who is trying to kill you?" Which in the next section they're like, and then they decide to kill him. Um, uh, it's like there's various groups. I think is part of the challenge. Um, if if you really read any of the Gospels slow, you'll find yourself that there are crowds, there are disciples, there are Pharisees, there are scribes, and so often Jesus. There's, there's a lot of characters. We tend to think is that there's one character, but if you read it, and so there is a group trying to kill him, although these people he accuses may not be the ones actually trying to kill him, um, but they accuse him of being demon-possessed. This notion of not being able to keep the law is an interesting one, because then he continues on to say that I did one miracle and you were all amazed, yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though it actually came not from Moses but from the patriarch, you circumcise a boy on the Sabbath. Now, if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry at me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. It's a little bit of a a logic game here, which goes back to the rabbis, which is there's a command to, to circumcise on the eighth day, and then there's a command to not do work on the Sabbath. The rabbis at the time devised this way of saying that the greater becomes before the lesser, the greater being circumcision. So if a boy is born so that the eighth day falls on a Sabbath, you do the work of circumcision. And Jesus in the New, Intu- uh, New Testament, and the Old Testament, sort of insight to circumcision is this idea in which it's the cut by which we are cut by God and which wholeness may flow into us. Um... That this is a sign that someday we'll have circumcised hearts. That our hearts will be cut. That we'll be bent in this way towards God. And so what Jesus says to them is to say that if you will take the little thing, do that work on the Sabbath, in the previous scene when he healed somebody at the pools, how much more would it be important to heal a whole person? To bring healing to a whole self on the Sabbath. And this is, I think, this time going through John's gospel is one of the things that has struck to, stood out to me more than it has in the past is how much they're kind of fine with Jesus coming from God and doing miracles, but the idea that Jesus wants to bring us back into reconciliation and life and love is the greater challenge. Somebody would come and toss us some food, miraculously or not, isn't that offense in this world? But what's offensive when he says, I'm the bread, I'm the water, I'm making people whole again, that's the greater work. The help doesn't seem to be as much of the issue as the full help, which is bringing us back into reconciliation with God. This is the deep depth of what he's trying to point out in this passage, this challenge to him. But Jesus told them I will be with you a little longer then I will return to the one who sent me and you will search for me but you will not find me and where I am going you cannot come. This is Jesus' challenge to them as they seek for him and try to get him and seize him and kill him. I am only here for a short time and I am going to the one who sent me. Um, Jesus in John's gospel is drawing us to this point too is that to be with him in this time and as we search out for him, it's, it's here he is with us as we come and see. Where he's going will not come. The accusations is that they bring after him is one of the great parts of John's gospel. So often people proclaim things that turn out to be true, but not in the way they mean. Will he go to the other nations and teach them? Is actually what his disciples and followers will do filled by his spirit. If you follow John, and it's happened a couple times already where they're like, will you do this thing? And it's like, he doesn't do them, but it's our call to go forth and do them. There's this confusion in this moment. But the peak of this passage is this moment in which he stands up at the last day of the festival. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare living water flow from his heart. Similar to what he said to the woman at the well, but slightly different. One of the things I love about this passage is anyone who is thirsty. Who is this one? Is he good or bad? Who is this one? Is he a prophet or not? Who are we in relationship? How are we going to all figure this out? Where does living water come from? From thirst. Anyone who is thirsty. Not anyone who is smart. Not anyone who has it all together. Not anyone. Uh, Robert Capon has this beautiful phrase that the only prerequisite to receive the gospel is to be dead so that you can be raised to life. The only prerequisite to know this one is not to figure out all the challenges that he's thrown out, but are you thirsty? And we are, are, are thirsty creatures. Um, than the metaphorical sentence. We seek many other things to quench our thirst. We go to many other wells. We try many other things. The Christian life, at least as I've failed at practicing it, is trying many wells while sticking close to the one. Doesn't work that way. Because so often as I go to the other wells, what happens is they dry up. They don't fulfill. The thirst gets stronger so that the water that comes from those wells no longer fulfills. That might actually be the most important thing I've learned from hanging around the well and the water that Jesus offers is that it's one that never seems to lose its power or its quenching ability. All the other ones, it's either I want more or they become boring or they they run dry or they just were a lie and they're not really water, they're, they're sand. Um, whatever it is, they, they tend to be that. But the one, as I hang around that one and return to it in my own fumbling in living this spiritual life, this Christian life, this whole life as I've tried to live it, is that that one always seems to be still water. It still seems to be there. Even as we try and run and go to other places. And these living waters uh, will flow from his heart. These will flow out of us. When we drink to that one, often what flows out of me is better than when I run to other ones. But there's a bigger meaning here as well. There's this um, teaching about Jesus being the tabernacle amongst us. These are images from the Bible project that I just want to share briefly. What happens is that the Old Testament has this image of sort of two domains, God's domain and our domain. Our domain on the right, the world, age of sin, Uh, God's domain on the left, eternal life, kingdom of God, heaven. And these two things, because of the fall, become separate. One, um, we used to walk with God, they used to overlap, and what happens is division comes in them. Um, what God does to repair the divide that happens between that world and this world is he gives the people temple. He gives them a sacrificial system. He gives this place where that can overlap. If you look at the image that's in the temple, the images that are in the temple um, in the Old Testament, so many of them are recalling the Garden of Eden. They're calling that place, and so he gives them this place where the overlap can begin again. What Brian read For us from the book of Ezekiel is that living waters will flow out of the temple again and that it will transform waters upon the face of the earth and many fish and many trees um, which would be fish and trees but also when you think about it that what the author of Ezekiel is saying is that the waters that flow out will feed many nations and many other places so that they'll all be brought back to the one true God so that's that vision is that the waters will flow out of the temple What happens early in John's Gospel is Jesus is called the one who tabernacles amongst us, that he is the temple. But oddly, as the temple, this is their next image, he goes out into the unclean area and announces your sins are forgiven or that you are healed or that you are made whole. That Jesus is this mobile version of the temple who goes out as the living water and offers us quenchment for our thirst. Jesus goes out and proclaims in the unclean area, the place not overlapped, and yet it doesn't affect him. When we talk about Jesus' baptism, I love the image of the reversed osmosis, that Jesus goes, and instead of being made dirty by the water, he cleans the water. He purifies as he goes. Things that would make us unclean, he's able to purify. This is what John says at the beginning of the gospel. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, So what happens is that one of the things that allowed people to be in the temple was sacrifice. What happens in the New Testament is Jesus becomes the sacrifice, and what we become as Christians, as those out in the world, who are able to be that as well. We are witnesses to the work that Christ has done in cleaning the world in the unclean portion of the world. There's one aside that they they try to make in this video, I'll put it in the link in the email this week, is that so much of Christianity thinks, how do I move from one side of the circle, the unclean side, to heaven on the other side of the circle? But what they sort of argue in the video, which I think has deep truth in it, you see more resonance with this in the Bible than perhaps the other, is that God's mission is to bring them back into alignment. Living waters are meant to go out into all the nations, and its leaves, as Brian said, or as Brian said reading Ezekiel, are meant for healing. The living waters are meant to flow out of us and into the world, and then in that full day, which we await, the reconciliation of all things, the world, um, the earth, and heaven, which we pray um, that it be on earth as it is in heaven in the Lord's Prayer, will be brought back into alignment. Anyone who thirsts for that, come to me and I will give you water. And living waters will flow from within them. This is the gift of the Spirit that comes later. The people then accuse him of, of being a prophet, of, of um, where he's from, There's these challenges of where he's from. They're still trying to figure it out. But we'll end where we began with that thought from Nicodemus. Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he is doing? It's for us to come to John's gospel and to hear what it is that God is doing. Making people whole again. Feeding them not of bread that needs to be purchased, but of bread that comes from heaven that nurtures us. Offering us water and in the next section, light um, to guide and be with us. Let us come and hear for the first time or again what it is that Jesus is doing so that we may come to know what the author of John says, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, and have a share of his life. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the discussions in John's Gospel. Who is this one? See a prophet. See the Messiah. See the one who has come to heal us and make us whole. God, may we with ears to hear and eyes to see, see what you are doing amongst your people. How we are invited to walk the path with you, to take in this journey and to take heart to your words. To hear what you offer in a world of thirst. To hear what you offer in a world of sickness and disease. To hear the temple healing, the waters from the temple that flow out and heal the world. Bear fruit for us. God, we ask that we may draw near and abide with Jesus through this hearing again. That he may become for us the Son of God, the Messiah. I ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.